Good morning, everybody. Will you please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3? I believe we have two more weeks, including today. So next week we'll be finishing up 2 Peter. And the church said, I'm just kidding. Because we love it so much, we're going back to first... No, I'm just kidding. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 this morning of Second Peter chapter 3. Let me read them for us now. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 3, above all, you must understand that in last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has and since the beginning of creation, But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water by water, verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Lord God, we come before Your throne, and uh, Lord, as Your servant Peter is, uh, has written these things down by the Holy Spirit, these words are for the church today here in Walla Walla. And Lord, may we have ears to hear what your spirit, through your word, is saying to your church. So God, uh, wake us from our sleep, God. Fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, uh, we, we anxiously await for your return. And may we be that holy bride set apart, unstained, unblemished, as your spirit works within us, but also, Lord, as we follow you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray that you would bless the study. Amen. As uh, Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, he is finishing up his final letter to the church. Peter, he tells us in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, why he's been writing. Why he's been writing. He says in verse 1, he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And so Peter says that the reason that he is writing, the reason that we're reading this letter is because he wanted to stimulate the church, stimulate believers to wholesome thinking. That's a pretty heavy task for a leader. I, I was at, just at a conference, you, you'd heard about that. One of the speakers quoted Bill Clinton, of all people, on, on, on about the difficulty of leadership, which President Clinton said, it's a pretty funny quote, says, running a country is a lot like running a cemetery. You've got a lot of people under you, but nobody's listening. <laughs> 
Peter was not the president of a country, but uh, he had given, given authority by Jesus Christ as an apostle within the church. And Peter calls the, the uh, people that are so-called under him, but actually that he's serving the beloved. And it's sadly translated friends in, in the NIV, but that word is, is beloved. And so he's speaking to the people he loved, loved of God and by the way, he loved them. And so Peter says, I've written to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. That word stimulate has the idea of someone who is asleep and is being aroused, is being awakened uh, like a sea that is being agitated and stirred. It's coming out of its lull. It's starting to wake up. And that is the purpose that, re- that Peter is writing for, for us today, that we'd be stirred, we'd be awakened, we'd be aroused in our thinking. So Peter is writing to stir the waters within believers, to stir our souls, to refocus the church to wholesome, sanctified thinking. I love that. And that word wholesome means pure. It means unsullied. It means sincere. It means when you take something and you put it against the light, you can see that there's no blemishes, there's no... um, there's no uh, cracks in it or anything like that. You can truly see what it is, and it's, it's found flawless, and that's the idea. We'd be found without stain in what we're thinking. And by the way, we know that what we think and what we believe determines what we do and, and how we act. And so Peter, knowing that the church was going to be facing, was facing persecution, horrific persecution, was also facing the onslaught of false doctrine. So the enemy is attacking physically. The enemy is going to come in and attack doctrinally to try to undermine the church's faith. And by the way, the enemy is still working in these same ways against the church. We look at the churches maybe in difficult areas of the world, and they are getting attacked um, absolutely physically, correct? You see them being martyred for their faith, and we pray for them. We look at them, and we go, oh, Lord, have mercy upon our brothers and sisters, and our hearts pour out for them, and we, we, go, to, we go to bat for them, and we pray for them against those things that they would be... And, and, and yet, at the, the same time, we hear of stories of those people praying for us, going, oh, Lord, help them. They have no idea what they believe. And the enemy is attacking, you know, the church, maybe in America, with, with false doctrine or false teaching and all these other things. And so the enemy doesn't necessarily need to persecute us in that way. He undermines us in a different way. So Peter was facing a church that was going to be facing both. They had already faced persecution, there, and that false teaching was coming in, that they would be set straight in their, in their theology. They would stand upon the truth. They would know what was coming. They would know what they would believe because the attack of the enemy was present. It was there, and it was powerful, but Peter knew that they would, if they knew the truth, that they were established in the Word of God, of what God says about all these things, that they would stand, they would withstand the wiles of the devil and they would live God-honoring, God-exalting lives, lives that actually demonstrated the faith that they believed while they were waiting for the great salvation to appear, the return of Jesus Christ for His church. And the Holy Spirit this morning obviously would, would remind us of spiritual truth, having our minds stirred, having us um, awoken and awakened as the beloved of Jesus Christ. And, and Peter tells us how this happens in verse 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
And so Peter, to stir up the church, he focuses the church on two very important things, spiritual truth found in the Old Testament and what would be now for us the New Testament. He says the, ho- the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the, the commands of our Lord Jesus given to us by the apostles, which we find in the New Testament. And so that's basically what he, he, he is using to stir up the churches, focusing them on the Word of God, spiritual truth found on the Word of God. And the context we have is coming out of chapter 2, what we just got through, and I kind of did it in two sections because it's pretty heavy. The context coming out of chapter 2 is the judgment of God coming upon false prophets and the ungodly. I mean, it was pretty... Peter went into great detail about what that looked like, and, and Peter has already given us examples. He said, I'm going to give you old examples from the Old Testament to tell you that's how God dealt with things then. Those are patterns because that's how he's going to deal with things now, what's, what's coming ahead of you. And so he spoke about the angels that were judged. He spoke about in the days of Noah, the people who rejected Noah's preaching, a preacher of righteousness, and all of a sudden the flood came within a day and they were all destroyed and only eight were saved. And he goes on and speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, what was happening in that city and how fire came down from heaven. And he's using those as pictures in the Old Testament of what is coming soon upon this world. And and his point is that just as then when everybody's going, yeah, whatever, So people today are going, yeah, whatever, and it's going to be a sudden destruction upon the earth. And that's Peter's, where he's going. And so he's he's stirring the minds of people by pointing them to the Scriptures, reminding them what the prophets said in the Old Testament and what the New Testament uh, was, was, was proclaiming by the commandments of the Lord and by the apostles who faithfully gave those things out. And so examples of the Old Testament prophets other than the ones we gave. Just think about this. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 16. Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 16. This is what the Old Testaments were talking, uh, Old Testament prophets were speaking about. And by the way, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter because not only mixed with judgment is also salvation. So we can't just leave half of it out, but Peter's definitely emphasizing something. Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 15, 16. Isaiah prophesies, he says, See, the Lord is coming with fire, and His chariots are like a whirlwind. And He is bringing down His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire, uh, sorry, for, for the fire and with His sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those who are slain by the Lord. This is what Isaiah is prophesying about, about the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord comes and sets things straight or begins to set things straight. Or how about Malachi and Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3, if you're taking notes. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stumbled. And the day is coming, uh, is coming, will the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will be trampled, then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Quite a contrast there between the righteous and the wicked, huh? And so Peter says, I've stirred you up, I'm stirring you up from your sleep. 
I want the church to be mindful of what is coming. And he focuses us on the prophets of the Old Testament. But not only the prophets of the Old Testament, the commands of Jesus himself in the New Testament and what the apostles said. Of the 24 books of the New Testament, 17 of the books, I'm sorry, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 17 of the books speak directly about the return of Christ. It's pretty, well, 24 of the 27, excuse me. For some reason I wrote down 17, that's silly. Uh, 24 out of the 27 books of the New Testament uh, speak directly about the return of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to go every single one of them in detail right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but those other four allude to it, the four that don't. And so, um, uh, the, the three that don't. And so, but Christ spoke concerning the promise of His coming. He did. Jesus spoke about it. Um, like in Matthew 16, 27, if you're taking notes, this is Jesus speaking about His coming. In Matthew 16, 27, He says, The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Boy, those are promises of Jesus. Amazing, huh? How about Matthew 25, 31 through 33, and verse 46? I'm not going to read all of it. Matthew 25, 31 through 33 and 46. This is Jesus speaking about His return. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. And if you skip down to verse 46, He sums up the whole thing. It says, "...and then they," that is the goats, "...will go away to eternal punishment." But the righteous, the sheep of God, that is, go to eternal life. And do you see how this is how Jesus is speaking? All of history is funneling down. This world is funneling down to the moment when we stand before Christ. And Peter is stirring up our minds saying, Are you righteous or are you ungodly? The righteous will live like it. The ungodly Will not. And there are many other examples of Jesus speaking about his return and his judgment. And if you read the New Testament, the apostles, they simply echo what Christ was saying. They are giving these messages that, that the Lord had given them and, and also had direct revelation. But for example, first Thessalonians, or sorry, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. This is Paul. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, as to us as well, because both the church and the apostles were really troubled by people being persecuted. He's saying God will pay him back. This will happen when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus what did you learn from that verse? It's important to know God and to obey the gospel, right? <laughs> they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have what? Believed our testimony to you, have believed the gospel. Believing is not just an intellectual thing, it is a life thing. And then Paul, again, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, as he's talking, Tim, as he's speaking to Timothy, he's charging him to preach. Well, why, what is he 
what's the, what's the motivation for Timothy to preach? What's the motivation for him to stay on the straight and narrow? What's the motivation for Timothy to actually preach to you the truth? Well, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. He's going to appear, and you're going to give an account, Timothy. Be ready. Or perhaps one of the most prolific examples of the apostles conveying the return of the Lord, in addition to Peter, what we're talking about today, in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. If you're taking notes, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the apostles relaying um, the return of the Lord. And this is penned by John the Apostle, where he recounts for us, he says in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he wages, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And, it, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what's in Peter's mind on a Sunday morning. He's coming. He's coming for you to grab you out before he does this. Are we attached to this place so deeply and or are we attached to him? He wants to stir the waters of our soul. The Holy Spirit's doing that this morning. He's stirring the water of our soul. He's calling us to be a holy bride, a holy church, set apart to Him, willing to endure whatever ridicule and and stuff that is going to go on around us because we know you have a great salvation and a great love. And at the same time, as as we know our Savior, we, we extend that to everyone around us who will repent and believe and say that the door is open. Come to Christ. Receive Him. His grace is mighty. Whatever you've done, whatever offense you've, you've given towards Him today, in your life, His blood is absolutely, totally sufficient to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And I don't know about you, but I need that word all. Anyone else? That's how mighty His grace is. And so it's in the backdrop of this that His grace is just so huge. So Peter has been stirring up the church to some sincere thinking by reminding them of spiritual truth concerning the return of Jesus. When he comes, he's coming to take back his purified, redeemed people, his holy bride that is ready and waiting for him. Amen? Who longs for him. I like what A.W. Pink, he's an English he was an English uh, Bible teacher last century. He said of Christ's first and second coming. He said, the first time Christ came to slay sin in men, the second time he will come to slay men in sin. 
It's pretty powerful. The first time Christ came to slay sin in men, the second time he's coming to slay men in sin. May the Lord Jesus return to a church that is awake and ready for him, holy and set apart, amen? And this is why Peter reminds and focuses the church on that spiritual truth from cover to cover, the word of God, pointing us to our great and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what the Holy Spirit is working within the church uh, to, to wake us up, to not get us more further synch- synchronized with the culture, but to get to, to be synchronized with the Holy Spirit, to be synchronized with the kingdom of God. Amen? And so Peter, he reminds that church in us of spiritual truth, that we would be stimulated to wholesome and sincere thinking. And this is important because if we're not thinking of these things, if we're not aware, if we've been fed your best life now, because that's what I want to hear, not what is coming, not His kingdom and the impacts of us upon us now, we're going to be in danger of being caught off guard. And so this is where Peter's going back to the warning. So back in verses 3 and 4, Peter says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following after their own evil desires. And they will say, hey, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so Peter says that in the last days, that is, as the return of Christ becomes is, is sooner, you know, is, is almost there, the, the, the scoffers are going to increase. There's going to be scoffers. And as you can imagine, the apostles are starting to die off. They're being persecuted. The persecution of the church is happening. More time has been separating between uh, when Christ came, and they're all talking about Christ's return. All the apostles thought that Jesus would return right then. And what happened? Even the church started it out. Hey, I thought he would come in my lifetime. But that's one of the marks of the believer. We are so convinced that he's coming that that purifies us. And I think God puts it that way in our lives. I mean, how many of you had parents go out of town when you were younger? And the fear of them coming home at any moment kind of, (laughs) you know, it kind of, you know, you judged your day by that, right? It's like, "Mm, I'm not going to do that because, you know, there's that going on, you know? But also the love, you know, of course, I mean, some of us work that way. Some of us work because, man, there's nothing I would ever do to displease this person. I love them so much, right? But it's both and. And so there's these scoffers that come and they say, listen, where is this coming? It's, it's been a while now, hasn't it, church? And you can imagine today, how long has it been? 2,000 years? Well, we better change that doctrine, don't you think? Why in the world would God wait so long? Peter says, in the last days, they're going to be coming, saying, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And this word scoffer means, it just means mockers. Those who mock the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is returning to save us and to judge the, the living and the dead. So, and... We're now 2,000 years removed from the death of Jesus Christ and closer to His return, and mockers are abounding today. Have you noticed it? 
So Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and the rest, they're all saying, where's his coming? You guys believe in a giant spaghetti monster in the sky and all these types of things that are coming our way. And Sam Harris, a renowned atheist, even called it a national emergency in one of his books that we, we actually believe in the return of Jesus Christ because there are a bunch of crazy people out there waiting for calamity. And so there's just this whole movement that basically looks at us as we are an epidemic. We gotta, we get, they, these people are, are illogical and they're crazy and they need to be dealt with. And as we get further removed from any sort of Judeo-Christian foundation within our country, not as if it was perfect in the beginning, but the open hostility and mockery of Christianity is getting worse. And Peter says, expect it. Church, expect it. Expect what you believe not to be accepted by unbelievers. Amen? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It kind of makes us want to recoil and go in the shadows and not talk about what we believe and all those types of things. I understand. I've been there. I've, I've worked secular work. I've been ridiculed. I've been all those types of things. I just get feisty, though. I fight back. But that's the, I, I need to not do that. But it really is, it really is difficult. I understand. And this is why Peter keeps bringing us back to the Word. Because I, I, and this is important, because I think we believe things, but we don't know why we believe them. And when we're challenged, we fold like cards. Because we're standing on what Matt told you, and you can't necessarily go to what Jesus told you. You know what I'm saying? And it's important that we as the church be able to go beyond the pastor and into the Word ourselves, and to sit there and say, this is what Paul the Apostle, this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus says to his church. And it's upon the rock of what he says that I stake my life. Because just, and, and this, is the, this is the trouble also that I, that I have, is that when we pick and choose what we like about Scripture, we pick and choose our God. But the same Jesus that says that all of your sins are forgiven when you place your trust in me, amen, do you believe that? I want that one. It says, I'm coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's the same guy. Same God, amen? And just as His grace is absolutely, totally sufficient for us, and we take that wholeheartedly and we stand upon it because of what He says, let us also stand on the difficult things. Let us stand on the other things as well that Jesus says that, we, that might not be culturally accepted that might be difficult. And let us stand, and not only in a, in a, you know, don't be feisty about it, but stand firm. And I just think that's important. What do we stand upon? Not, you know, the Constitution and all these other things, they're great, but you know what? What God says is eternal word to you, his son, his daughter. He's given you it. He's put apostles. People have died to present it to you, to, to put it into your hands and your heart. Stand upon it. Embrace the suffering. Embrace the rejection. Embrace the cross in your life. Be willing to go, you know what, Lord? Me too. Me too. I love you more than this present world. 
And we stand upon the return, the literal return of Jesus Christ. And then, yeah, you get into discussions with people. And then you learn, wow, I don't really know how that comes about. But hopefully that should drive you not into fear and disarray. That should drive you into the arms of your Father and say, Lord, teach me. And then He begins to unfold His Word to you and, and show you these things. It begins to click in your heart and you now have an understanding, a deep understanding of what God means. Not only about the gospel, but salvation, of sin, of hell, of angels, of demons, of this age, the age to come, all these types of things. You start to see the world the way that, that He sees it. And He's your father and you're His daughter, you're His son, and you begin to see the world the way that He sees it. And it starts to make sense. When you get hit, it hurts, but you stand in love. And so, as you can imagine, as the apostles are dying off and these things are happening, there's a ridicule that comes even more fiercely as it is today. And Peter makes a judgment call about these people who are ridiculing. He says that these men are driven by their own evil desires. That is what is driving them. They're not of the light. They're of the flesh. They're of the world. That's all they know is what is here. This is in contrast to what believers are. Romans 8, 5, the very nature of a believer is different than that of a non-believer. Who, believers are identified as those, not as those who have their minds set on what the flesh desires. We're not ruled by the flesh. We're not ruled by this world, by drives and desires. We're ruled by, rather, the Spirit and what He desires. That's, that's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. And Peter says that because they are of the world, they are ruled by the flesh, that's what's driving them in their mockery. Because we believe in a God that's going to come judge that. And we also believe in a God that saved us from that judgment. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> and that's really important to articulate. I am totally guilty, and God saved me. And that's, we are all under that. And Peter says that's, that's, that's what's going on there. And he says in verse 5, But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, Peter's saying, mockers purposefully, they suppressed the truth. The truth that by God's word, the heavens came into being, and by that word, the earth was formally destroyed by water. And they deny that God is the creator, and, they, and that he spoke the world into existence. And they deny that he, how he made the world, and they deny also that he destroyed the old world. They just reject anything biblical whatsoever, anything spiritual whatsoever. Everything has to be, you know, a rational explanation. When I went to, uh, when I went to school, the, the universe was, um, I don't know, what was it, 10, 10 point something billion years old? Now it's 14. I'm not that old. Um, but lacking information, we are learning things all the time, and so their frame of reference changes all the time. It's, it's quite interesting to get into these discussions, but I don't want to get into it right now, which I just started to. But, um, but they deny God as creator. And if you read Genesis 1, just in the first 10 verses, we're not going to read all of them, but in verse 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
That is what Christians believe. They believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And that's what he describes. That when God created the heavens and the earth, this thing was a ball of some kind of liquid or something. They call it waters. And God's Spirit was hovering over it. And so you have the Father, you have the Son, and the Spirit all active there. You have God, you have the Word, and you have the Spirit. And so the earth began as a mass of some kind of water, and, and so Peter, Peter is referring back to Genesis, to the creation of the world by God's command. He said, because God spoke it, it came into being and it existed, and it was water. And by that same word, the, waters, the world that was created by water was destroyed by water in the flood, and that's his point, that God's word is what commands the universe, that he spoke it into existence, It was water, and then at his word, it was destroyed by flood. It's interesting, I don't have it in my notes here, but how many of you have studied flood lore? Anybody done flood lore? You start to go in all these different areas all over the world, and you go into the ancient cultures, and they all have these crazy stories of people surviving a giant flood. It's fascinating. And of course, some of, them are, some of them are really crazy and wacky, and we would go, well, yours is crazy and wacky. But yeah, but if you read it, it seems pretty normal like, compared to all the rest of, of all the other stuff. But th- there's a common thread within all of our ancient cultures that there was a universal flood that destroyed the world, and yet we reject that. And so Peter is referring back to Genesis, that creation of the world by his command, and also the destruction in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3, says, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged, I mean flooded and destroyed. The world was made by God and it was destroyed by God. In Genesis 6, you can see that evil was increasingly saturating mankind from the time of Adam until the time God judged the earth via flood. It was an increasing exponential sinful state within the heart of man to where evil was so thoroughly permeating everything that violence was on the face of the earth that it was just, it was a done deal. Genesis 6, 5 through 7, it says, and this describes it, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was evil, was only evil all the time. It was a world full of trolls. That's all it was. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. It's not that God had made a mistake. King James used the word repented, but he's trying to explain in our language the grieving of God's heart. He knew it would happen anyways, and he made it anyways. But the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, what am I going to do? I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created. Judged the world. This is God's role of creator and judge. Jesus used this example. When he's talking about a second coming, Jesus goes back and says, this is what it's going to be like when I come back. He uses this very example. Jesus didn't, this is the problem. We believe in Jesus, but we don't believe in what Jesus believed. That's, there's something not right there. Jesus referred to seven days of creation as literal. He also believed 
in Adam. He also believed in Eve. He also believed that God created, I mean, all these things. You just go through and look what Jesus says. He believed in a literal Daniel, not seven Daniels or whatever it is that higher criticism brings us, for those of you who are into that. But Jesus in Matthew 24, 37 through 39, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be just like that. From the days of the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. <clears throat> now, real quickly, what is, what is life like for you guys? What do you do every day? You eat. You drink. You get married. You know what I mean? There's this, this life. It's just describing. Life is going on just as it always was. That's what he's saying. Up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be sudden, and it's going to be total, and it's going to take the world by total shock and surprise. How tragic is that? Peter says they purposefully ignored what the Lord did in the past. Like today's mockers and scoffers, Peter says that he was dealing with, they also purposefully denied the literal creation story and the judgment of God upon the world. And here's the tragedy in verse 7 that Peter's funneling us to. And by the same word, the same word that he spoke the world in existence, the same word that he flooded the world with, by that same word, just the power of his word, what's going to happen? The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So just as God destroyed the world by flood by His word, and everyone was taken by total surprise because they didn't listen to Noah, a preacher of righteousness, by the way, it says, so God will judge the earth again, but this time by fire because they have rejected not Noah, but who? The Son. And Jesus tells the parable. He says, long ago, there was a vineyard, and so they had servants, and the servants told these people who overtook the vineyard and kind of abused things. He, well, the owner of the vineyard was far away, and so he sent servants to go tell the people of the vineyard, hey, knock that off. And anyways, they wouldn't listen. They killed those servants. And that kept going and kept going and kept going until finally he said, listen, I'm going to send my own son. Surely they're going to listen to my son. Now, God's not upset there not knowing what's going on. He's doing that for our benefit. I'm going to send my own son. And they killed the son. And what did God say? He says, now I'm going to come back and I'm going to square things away. And that's what's happening. But the son rose again and he's going to come back and take care of business. So God is going to speak and this world will dissolve. It's really interesting. In Genesis, what you find out in the first few chapters is that when God speaks, it happens. Amen? And God said, let there be, and then it's so. You see that over and over and over again. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't happen in my life. I say things all the time, and like Bill Clinton, no one listens. Because I'm not, I'm not God. Jesus gets on the scene, and he speaks. And what happens to demons? They flee. What happens to the wind and the waves? They stop. What happens to the dead when he says, get up, come out, all that type of stuff, raise up? What happens? 
when he says to the church, if you believe in me, your sins are forgiven, what happens to your sins? They're forgiven. They're gone. Amen? Hallelujah. So by his same word, skip down to verse 10 in 2 Peter 3. It says, the heavens will what? Disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. At the word of the Lord. If you notice that when Jesus comes back and you read the scriptures, he isn't doing a lot of sword play. He just speaks. That's all he's doing and people die. That's all he has to do. And by the way, he's spoken and you can have his eternal life. That's all he has to do. He spoke his word. Believe upon me, repent and believe, and you will have eternal life. What a gift. And it is now. It's for you. It's for your neighbors, for your friends. It's not in my ability to muster up the gospel. It's his power. The gospel is, is his power unto salvation, not Matt's. We believe upon what he says. And notice it was by God's command that the worlds were destroyed. And so the Holy Spirit, through Peter, speaking to the church, his beloved bride, to remind us what God has done, the pattern he laid out of the old world of judgment and salvation, and for us to withstand the mockers as we stand upon God's promises, Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter quickly says in verse 8, but don't forget this one thing. Why is God taking so long? Why won't he return? What's going on? Peter goes, look it. He's already made good upon his word, but why is he waiting? But don't forget this one thing, church. With the Lord, a day is like what? It's like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Jesus is coming, church. Don't forget, Peter says, by the way, that word forget is the same word that the mockers use. Jesus says, don't forget. Mockers willfully forget that God did these things. Peter says, don't do the same thing. Don't you forget. Don't you willfully discard how God deals with things. If you know God and you know his patience, why is he taking so long? Why is he taking so long? Why isn't he come back? I've got a bunch of answers in this room. For you. For me. For our kids. For our grandkids. Amen. How many of you want to see him come to the Lord? How many of you want to see them burning in hell forever and ever and ever? It's like, what in the world? Who would ever want that? No, we want justice. We want to delay wrath. We want long-suffering and mercy upon them. We just, please come to the Lord. And so there's a, there's a great, mighty patience with God. Aren't you glad that that is part of His character? And the Lord wrought that with, in us with others, amen? The same way He's been to me while we wait for the blessed hope. So Peter says, don't forget. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like the day. The Lord's not slow. God's timetable, not ours. His timetable. As someone said, I can't remember who said it, but the world is not falling apart, it's falling into place. 
I love that. He is sovereign. He isn't delayed. He is right on time. He is keeping his promise. I've said it before. There's something we need to know about God. There's a reason that he delays judgment. Peter says, instead, instead of coming back already, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not only holy and just and will execute wrath, but he is love and long-suffering and merciful and gracious, and he loves his enemies. Amen. But there will be a day when the ark closes. There will be a day when it's done, and no one can get in, and it'll be over. But until that day, come to the Lord. Repent, believe. The way is open. His salvation is for us, and it's for all who would believe and repent. Amen. And that's the message of the church. There's hope. So much so that he sent his son, Jesus, who left eternity and took a body like ours, and he died on a cross for our sins, that through faith in his death, in our place, we would be forgiven. And through faith in his resurrection from the dead, we would be given his eternal life. Jesus said in John 3, 16 through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now pay attention because you know that verse. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Why not? Is there anything to condemn in the world? Absolutely. Why not? But to save the world through him. He wants to save the world if you keep reading verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the same God. See, God didn't come to save an uncondemned people. He came to save a world that's already condemned. There's already condemnation here. He came to save. And so the Holy Spirit brings conviction of the condemnation so that they would come to a Savior. And the world is not convicted by an unholy church. We are under the condemnation of God, and Jesus came to save us, to bring us to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Read the whole verse, verse 4. But if you believe, you're under grace, and there's no condemnation. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. No wrath. Amen. Let me close by reminding us of the great salvation we have in Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9, I'm just going to read it. We'll pray. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you underline, circle these precious promises of Jesus. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're not asleep. You are all children of the light and children of the day. That's what terms for being born again. We do not belong to the, dark, to the night or to the darkness, so then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let us be about the things of the kingdom. Let the word of God stir our hearts to be awake. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, 
let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a, breastplate, uh, as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Lord, we praise you this morning. By your grace, we are saved. We are not under the wrath of God, but we are now under grace. Let us live like it. Let us be that bride that is prepared and ready and waiting for you, focused on you, not everywhere else. Stir our hearts and minds this morning. And may you be so alive in us that the world would see the hope of our salvation as we love you and love one another. And I pray for anyone here who is outside the camp, who's wandered and who has gone. The Lord Jesus desires that no one should perish but should come to repentance. His, his way is open. And the way is that you totally abandon your life to him. You believe that he died in your place to pay for all that you've done before a holy God and that he rose again on the third day that you would have victory over death through him, his eternal life. It's yours just by believing. And so it's for you. Come to him now. Receive him. And then follow him day by day, simply in grace. And so, Lord, we want to thank you for this letter that Peter has given us, your servant, and your Holy Spirit has spoken to our hearts this morning. We just give you our hearts, and we ask for you to lead us this week in the things of your kingdom. And as we look out on the sea of people who do not know you, Lord, let our hearts burn and be burdened for the things that burden you. Yes, a rejection of the darkness around us, but, Lord, a hand that reaches into it and with love to extend your grace, Lord, and help us in the midst of it, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.